Okay, everybody, welcome to the Snap No Tap video uh, podcast. And as you might have seen, we're, we're not having an introduction video like we normally do because of technical things, because our wonderful Joe Cardinal, the one and only, is out of town for three weeks, I believe it is, um, living it up out east somewhere, parts unknown. And he'll be back either the last week, end of this month of August, or he will be here for September. So we got the one and only Brian Deneve filling in along with Nico. So I just want to welcome you guys and say hello, guys. And uh, how's things been with you, especially you, Brian, since we haven't seen you? Hey, things are going great. Um, had a great weekend. Uh, weather's been really nice in Wisconsin. We got these spotty rain type uh, things going on. You probably got that in Illinois, too. And I was actually out on a big bike ride with some other guys and having a few beers at some outdoor venues and kind of race against time with, well, where can we go to, to hunker down, you know, that type of stuff. And I don't know, harkens back to some really first world version of like survivalism, you know what I mean? But like, oh, where else can we go drink beer and, uh, <laughs> and not get washed yeah. out? So that was my, uh, that was my Saturday. We got to get Kurt Russell, the escape from New York thing. How are you doing, New, uh, New York? Nico, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing about the same. So, you know, nothing new, same old, same old. But, yeah, it's different without Joe. Um, he handles a lot of the we, – we had done some practicing last year because, you know, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary of the podcast. And, uh, you know, so we, we had Joe handle all of it. So I think probably for, for the next couple of weeks, we may be not doing the intro or, or who knows, we'll play it by ear, but that's not the big deal. But no, it's, it's coming up on, you know, think about it in about a month, it'll be Labor Day here in America. So that's the unofficial end of summer. Wow. Time is flying. Yeah, we'll have to have a birthday cake, like a podcast uh, birthday cake, like a big microphone or something. I don't know. Hey, did you get my birthday well wishes, by the way? I sent you a nice thing on your Facebook page. Yeah, I, I believe I did. Okay, I, uh, sure. I didn't respond directly to all my Facebook, so. Um, well, you have thousands. It's hard. Too <laughs> many fans, right? Yeah. Well, ever since you did American Pie, you know, it's just been um, crazy for you. Well, I, I mean, MILF is in popular culture and mainstream <laughs> vernacular, thanks yeah. to me, right? In 1998 yeah. so Man, we, we saw that together tony you and i remember we were in I the know. theater yeah i think i think you if i recall you'd already seen the movie you just liked it so much you went again to, with me and i was like yeah. sure all right and sure well, enough just, yeah my guy john cho you're like hey i remember i saw this guy he reminded me of you and i'm like oh. so when i first saw that movie i screamed out you know it's brian magic because with you back then who knew you know you could a lot it could have been you for all i know you know you were into a lot of things and yeah so yeah Nico, I, I had I didn't tell you I when I when I was staying in California for that summer uh near campus at UCLA and I actually literally had some lady gr girls I mean in their 20s you know apartment building that thought I was I was him like there was there was two cousins that were coming in from Canada they were still staying the summer and they the two of, and I had spoken to these two before just casually and introduced myself but one cousin was swear to God, like, no, that's, that's, that's him. And the other guy's like, no, it's not. we've talked to this guy. And so, yeah, she enlightened me after I, uh, uh, this was when I think maybe the third one was coming out. It wasn't the first one. It was one of the subsequent sequels, which 
between direct direct to video i think they have like 20 versions now if you ever want to watch them but yeah so yeah i've only seen the first one and i think maybe the second or parts of the second i never saw any of the other ones but the first one was yeah it was good i i enjoyed it it was it's, you know my high school was anything like that it wasn't or it was nothing like that i should say but it still was a fun movie to watch hey speaking of that um i just found out that marky post passed away and she was in there's something about mary she was the mother yeah uh, I, you know and fall guy and all that stuff night court 70 years old wow cancer yes i was gonna mention that because she was uh she was a she was a really nice looking lady during night court you know i mean if you recall um yes even up into so yeah that's unfortunate rest in peace yeah, I remember from Fall Guy first, because, you know, I used to watch that because I was into the pickup truck and Heather Thomas was on there. I think that was her name. Um, but, yeah, I always thought I like Marky Post, you know, it's just. So yeah. What did she play in, in uh, Fall Guy? Lee Majors was the lead, but. Yeah, she was like, I forgot what, like his, bo- not a boss, but like she would send him on jobs or something like that. I would think he was a bounty hunter. So, you know, I think she would get him cases or something. I, I don't remember. It's been the 80s since I've seen the Fall Guy. But I used to like Perfect. that truck. Huh. Right, right. Um, no, that was a big thing. We're going back. Nico, I know you're a few years younger, but this was the early 80s was like the Heather Thomas. Heather Locklear was on yeah. uh, TJ Hooker. Shatner was playing the cop. Yeah. Um, and then we also had, um, but Night Court, because I remember the thing with Night Court was she was always like in those like, you know, 19, she was a, played a lawyer working for the the city or the county, whoever the, the prosecutor and defense were at the time, a public defender. And, you know, there are always like those random episodes where she's taken off like the power suit and putting on some like cocktail dress and just obviously, you know, gorgeous, you know what I mean? But it was kind of like that average to frumpy looking, not even frumpy looking woman, but then they always like dollar up to be like, whoa, the big reveal, big surprise. And you can pretty much tell depending on, you know, if a woman's attractive, no matter what she's wearing, it's kind of hard to hide but um yeah that was a good show too i enjoyed that back in the day bull remember him the tall guy yeah yeah i never got to see much of uh that show um <clears throat> i know what was his name harry anderson i forgot um the star he was a magician um i've seen him do some magic like you saw live no no oh. just on tv back then on shows that would feature magic or something yeah, magic is a whole. Actually, Joe Cardinal, uh, who's not with us today, but you know he's such a such a huge force that we're talking about him now. He and I had a conversation once on um, how that's changed with the you know the proliferation of of you know the social media and the internet, like to where it's so difficult for magicians to sometimes um, do tricks because people can just look them up. You know what I mean? And he told the story, which I thought was ridiculous because it was uh, I think it was he was at a uh either he knew the magician or it was just one of his friends it was at some kind of like kids party like teenagers or boy scouts or something and the magician is doing his tricks and real time you know these little these little imps are looking the stuff up online and like calling him out on how he's doing this jobs you know with their with their mobile phones um it's sad to hear because about about the magic community like you know when they were pirating all of my stuff and everybody else's stuff the magic community wasn't doing that they were like really in lockstep about that they were you you could they were all about protecting the secrets of of uh let's call it a craft that that's gone back you know 
over a thousand years with magic, you know, and now that you're telling me this, um, cause I was unaware of all of this. Mm-hmm. That's sad. And yeah. Even, yeah, this social media, you know, it's while I hear people say, Oh, there's good things about it. I got to believe the, the negative just demolishes the positive. It just far outweighs the positive. I mean, some of that stuff is beyond tricks though. It's like, like you, you ever see how David Blaine could take a nail and just put it inside a board. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a trick. I think that's more of like practice and special techniques on some of those things. Well, he's not very highly regarded in the magic field, but uh, oh, really? No, but the, you know, but the the thing is, yeah, just like techniques, people could say, well, you know, you, you pirate a video, but you still have to practice the techniques. Well, it's not, that's not the thing. You're taking money away from the performer. So magic is all about. Um, the illusion, the, mm-hmm. the ooh and ah, and that's why most most solid mu- magicians will will only do the trick once, maybe twice. Because if, if you do it enough, you, the, the person's going to catch on, and then it, it loses its allure. Uh, so so re- regardless of because even like sleight of hand, I mean that takes a lot of practice, lots. Like card manipulation takes a lot of practice, but it does lose some luster when you know how the trick is done. So, yeah. yeah. But the reason that other magicians can in, enjoy other shows, yeah, they pro- they, they know how the, the trick's done 99% of the time. But it's the skill, the performer, that it's like, wow, okay, this guy, you know, Brian Deneve is really a good manipulator. He, he's, he's got a lot of talent. But, yeah, when you have little kids or, or whoever that are doing it in real time and then kind of like, you know, um, heckling the magician. Who wants to put themselves in that position? Who wants to do that? No. Yeah, that's that's BS. Um, that's even you know, if you listen to any of the comedians who have podcasts now, and there's you know dozens, hundreds at this point. But that's a big thing that they talk about is the intellectual theft that goes on with either joke stealing or number two, just not even allowing. I think even like high profile guys like Dave Chappelle don't even allow vi- phones to be even present or out like during his performance, because he's touring with these jokes and, you know, it's got obviously a a specific setup to timing to delivery. And if you've already heard that ahead of time, it just takes it completely away, um, you know, at that point. So, so there's been times and, you know, where they've been literally like bouncers have come seize the phones until after the show, because, you know, by, by direction of the performers. So it's understandable for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, that's like with, with martial arts seminars, a lot of times filming was not allowed because the, uh, the host or not the host, but the uh, performer would, you know, that's his material. And he would like to sell that. Um, if somebody's videoing, okay. So here, let's say you charge a hundred dollars a person. You got 10 people show up. That's a thousand dollars. Now, Let's say somebody's going to film this and then upload it. Well, then why would anybody want to pay the hundred dollars? They'll be like, "Well, I'll just wait a week because Joe Blow is going to upload it." You know, so now all of a sudden the guy can't even do a seminar because nobody's wanting to show up. And this has been, you know, it's a battle. It, it's it really is. And another problem that I've read about is editing. People will record something, either audio or visual, and then edit it to make the performer sound really bad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you could say something like, well, Joe's not feeling well. 
I, I hope he gets better and never dies or something. And then you can say, boy, Joe's not feeling well. I hope he dies. You know, they could edit it out, sure. you know, that kind of shit. And that yeah, happens. That's, that's the issue with big tech censorship as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to get on a political rant, but there are certain people with their personalities or things they've said that have been controversial that they'll get um, essentially canceled or censored or shadow banned or whatever, deplatformed. Um, so the entirety of the conversation may be this, but then somebody who's a critic of that person can slice and dice, edit it in a way and, 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 and package it. Those people may not be the people who are the critics of this particular original individual may still be able to propagate their footage or, or videos. And so anybody who walks away that, so then all of a, all of a sudden, you know, the general public or the audience now has a has a different view of that, um, whoever it is, political pundit or something. I mean, there's, you know, I could throw in a ten, 10 different names. I'm not going to, but that's, that's an issue. I feel that's, that's a concern, you know? Well, I was just, yeah, doing, absolutely. I was just doing a zoom with uh, a husband and wife uh, regarding training. And it's like, well, I read that, you know, BJJ says this and, and that catch wrestling is that. I said, it's propaganda. It's not true, but mm. it's repeated. They repeat the lie so many, you know, people on the internet so many times over so many years that people just, you know, tend to accept it. And it's like, not true, you know, um, absolutely not true. And, and that happens quite a lot. Even in our regular interactions with people, somebody may say, well, you said this. No, you're taking it out of context. I didn't say that. Or, you know, you didn't say that. You know how that is. But. Yeah, with the social media uh, or internet in general, things can just take a life of its own. It did in the past. I can remember in the 70s, well, let's say for sure the 80s, but in the 70s, where there would be people that would pass out like hand-printed stuff, okay, um, of of whatever nature. I remember uh, there was this pamphlet going around in my high school, and it was entitled or was titled um, The Universal Law of Man. That was the title of it. Now, I don't remember everything about it. I did read it. But in essence, it was some guy who just made up this list. This, it was like 10 or 12 pages of universal laws of man, uh, the history of the, the hidden secrets of the world and you know all of that stuff. Um, and some of it was just crackpot theories. But Imagine if that was going, if the internet was going on back then. That thing could have went viral and, you know, who knows, like we have now. Um, so, yeah, it always was around, I would I would guess. Just it was a little bit harder for that stuff to pro- proliferate than it is today. Very, very true. Yeah. yeah there was, uh, I mean, all of those. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Let's just put it that way. Well, eventually, you know, things are going to change and people are not going to have the access to the information like they have. I mean, it's changing already. I know people in in businesses who are no longer even doing like like I have that private membership thing. They won't even do that because of piracy. You know, um, they're just, you know, people are just fed up with it. They're just tired of it. It's like enough with the stealing. Stop stealing everything from everybody uh now with rock concerts and rock musicians and things you know they their their one option was kind of like touring so people would say oh it's okay if we pirate because then they can tour 
Well, no. Um, look what happened with the pandemic or just whatever. You have health issues uh, or whatever. You know, you, you, there's no justification for stealing somebody's uh, property. They're, they're, they're hard work. There's just no, yeah, it's just not right. Yeah, that's, that's got to be hard for musicians these days because it's like you can access pretty much any any type of music you want online and people can download it and there's ways around it without paying for it. That's got to be a tough business as well. Yeah, it's it. Like I said, I don't know when it'll happen, but something you know something's going to have to change because. You know, people like smaller, like guys at my level, you know, small individual, you know, individual types of people, um, you know, who don't sign Hollywood contracts or big recording contracts. We, we have no, um, we have no recourse, man. We, we just get shut down, period. There's just no way to go on. So. Tony, um, I, we, since we touched on magicians earlier, which, um, it, what are some common themes? I'm just wondering, because you often talk about, um, you know, when we're doing in training and catch wrestling or even fighting in general, the idea of I hear certain things like you've mentioned things about when you're attacking, like in an interval method, you, you create an illusion to your opponent about how maybe heavily conditioned you are or how aggressive you are because you're basically breaking up. Um, the rhythm of your attacks, so to speak. Like, that's one thing. And I've heard you, I think you've even used the term sleight of hand when it came to, um, you know, for example, reaching for a specific limb, but you're not even thinking about that limb that you're attacking. It's the other one that, that but you want to elicit a certain response or reaction to try to, you know, go for this essentially a combination uh, move. But uh, I don't know, anything worth, you know, touch, touching on that right now when it comes to application? Yeah, well, first of all, let's clarify that I'm not a magician. I mean, I'm uh, half-assed. I used to like to do card tricks at a very, 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 very poor level, but I could do a few little things. But one of the biggest things is misdirection, okay? Everything a magician, a, a pro, does is calculated, okay? There's nothing by accident. So normally when they're doing something, you know, they're doing it purposely to draw your attention to that. Meanwhile, they're doing something else surreptitiously. And then even, even in the world of gambling, three-card money or the shell game or guys that are really good card mechanics, you know, manipulators, um, it's all based on psychology. These people really understand it, you know, about people's attention, and, 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 and that's how it is. That's how I approach fighting, um, a lot of misdirection. And you hit on it. Like, for example, I may grab your wrist or, you know, whatever, and that's exactly, you're thinking, okay, he's going for, I don't know, top wrist lock or something. No, maybe I'm not, okay? I, I want to elicit something else. Like when I rip, I may rip you high to get, you know, up, up in your upper body to just get a reaction. The rip itself isn't designed, let's say one particular rip isn't designed to end the fight. It's designed to misdirect or guide you or lead you in a certain direction. So, to get specific about what this private Zoom lesson was about today, the guy said, well, in the BJJ world, they say position over submission, and the catch world is submission over position. And I said, that's just not true. You know, what it is is submission is the ultimate, you know, whatever the submission, the concession holder, or the strike may be. But it isn't even about position. It's about control. And I tried to explain to him, we could have a position that's in the BJJ world dominant, 
But one slight little variance, the position stays the same, but now you're no longer in control. The, the person who has the dominant position is now the victim here. He's not in the dominant, uh, he's going to lose. So that's what the, the way I, I, I approach fighting in that concept, in that uh, context <clears throat> is like a magician. I'm always leading you, never really revealing what the ultimate thing here is going to be. I want you to be completely confused, exhausted, you know, just, you know, exhausted with, with thoughts. Now you also brought up about the conditioning and how I can give the impression of, you know, like being, uh, I never gas. Well, no, what I would do back in the day was I would go because of the way I trained, I would go into bursts, like high full blast bursts for like, let's say 15, 20 seconds, whatever it may be. And then I could relax a little bit. That's my recovery. And you just keep doing it again because my recovery, I trained so that my recovery period would be very little, you know, very short. So that gave the impression, let's say I was going just for the hell of it for like a minute. That might give the impression that, man, he went nonstop for one minute. Well, I didn't. You know, I had like maybe four sets, you know, 15 seconds or whatever. You know, I'm just pulling numbers out. But so that's an illusion. And so it's all about not letting you get set, not just physically, not allowing you to get set mentally. You know, I don't want you to know what's happening. I want you on the edge of your seat, so to speak much like a magician would be, you know, what's he going to do? Oh my goodness. Look at that at the end. I never expected that giant lemon to be underneath that cup and ball thing, you know? And I don't know that this is how I uh, initially designed it. You know, like I, I, I cannot sit here and tell you, Oh yeah, I patterned this all off of a magician. If anything, when I really got into the study of jazz, I've mentioned this many times and I learned the theories, you know, the thought process of how to improvise, that really made it, you know, so much better. But it was just just the coincidence that that's just how I fought. I fought like a magician, just, you know, never letting you figure it out. I think a big part of that is um, not even just mentally having that, but even through your training application, being able to execute that when you wanted to. You obviously had to have a, a certain level of um, um I guess it'd be a, uh, like an anaerobic burst ability with your conditioning uh, in order to be able to turn that up. Cause some people don't train that way. Um, you obviously have to under have an understanding from a technical aspect of, of, you know, luring to a specific limb or a part of the body and then going to the other thing. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I could see where it needs to be that, that intersection or that, uh, that integration needs to be a big part of just how you train, let alone pull it off just because that's what you're thinking. Well, that's it. And, you know, that's how, you know, jazz musicians uh, approach it. You know, they, they do specific training to improvise, and they have what's called patterns or crutch licks as well. There's, there's a uh, misconception that every jazz musician, um, they're always you, you know, doing something completely new. That's not true. In a way, yes, they can they can play the same song ten different ways, but there's there's an outline that most of them follow, and there are what they call crutch licks that you know people will rely on. We do the same thing, or at least I'll speak for myself. I do the same thing when I fight. I'll improvise, but there are patterns, you know, that I will 
go for, you know. Um, but then I start mixing them together. It's kind of like, and then it becomes like random chaos, right? So you you you, you don't really know. And unlike music, like it's like go tos basically. You have well, you have your go improvising, but something you might need to go back to another place or another way because that's your well, fallback. Yeah, and I have safety zones too when I fight. I have safe houses, so to speak, where just so base because so music is like it's all about me, the performer. It's really not an interaction unless you're doing a give and take with, with a fellow musician, but with fighting, it's all reaction. So I may have one plot in my head, how I want to approach taking you out, but you may react in a different way. Okay. That, so now I have to do this a different way. Well, that's how it is in jazz. So if I'm doing a, if we're trading fours or eights as a musician, I may play some sort of lick here. And now you did something that, that I'm listening while I'm playing with you. I'm like, oh, okay, now I'm going off of what he just did. So my original thought where I think I was going with this is now changed because you did something that stirred me creatively in a different way. Well, that's how it is with fighting. You know, so you, you may have an idea, but things may have to change. So that's why you have to practice fighting with improvisation. You just do. Uh, not saying you don't drill over and over and over a certain move, but eventually you have to become a free thinker here uh, and start having some original thought because you you get you may get you know tied down so to speak um, and not be able to finish this guy off or it may take a long time to do so uh, but this again harks back again with the magic you know the magic is all about you know just not letting the uh, the spectators really know or be just so odd at the end and that's what fighting should be like at the end you know you should have been able to in quote unquote blow this guy away you know you should have been able to take him out and and perhaps in a way that they never never saw coming yeah tony and to touch on 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 that specific thing like where you're saying to improvise um i think it really helped me that some of the drills that you put me through like for example, or like with the double wrist lock or the top wrist lock, you make us go live and just kind of look for that in in any any position in any any way possible to try to find it. That really helped me out a lot, as, as opposed to just practicing the technique from just one position or, or one certain way. Because you gotta you you can really see it from many different positions and different angles and different setups, different ways to get it. When when you're going live and you're not just trying to, you know, you have a specific goal to find that in any way possible. To me, that really helped me to to improvise. Well, I'm glad. And let for those out there, see, so so like most people have never met me, right? Um, or if they did, it was at one seminar. And you spend a moment of time with me, two hours, whatever it is, three hours. But. Yeah, I'll teach you the mechanics of the move. And, and yes, you'll learn it from a position. It doesn't matter what position at this point. It's just here's the mechanics of the move. You got to understand the whole inside and out. But yeah, then you got to eventually, you can't, because I've trained some advanced guys in different styles that are like, wow, I never knew I could do that move from here. Well, yeah, because you're only doing it, you're only looking at everything from a position where you have to look at it in the bigger in the bigger concept, you know, there's, there's so much more to it. Um, 
And the majority of things happen during transitions. I've said this till we're blue in the face. You want your opponent to be moving so they're vulnerable. Okay. Now, when I mean moving, I don't necessarily mean, you know, 20 feet away, but you know, you want their things, their limbs up, down, open, close, you know, so you can create an attack um, and end this. So yeah, uh, that's part of improvising, uh, Nico. It's learning to see things, you know, non-traditionally, let's put it that way. So when I had you guys doing those practice drills of how to see a submission when you're watching a movie or a television show, or where, when you're on a public bus and you're looking at somebody else scratching their head, and you're figuring, you're looking at them and figuring all the ways that you can submit them. That's this is this is what helps you practice your improvisation. So, like a jazz musician may take a song like "Mary Had a Little Lamb," right? "Mary Had a Little Lamb," and they'll be going like "Ba ba da ba ba da ba da ba da," you know, just to themselves, right? They're improvising over "Mary Had a Little Lamb." Well, you guys can do the same thing anywhere. Like right now, with my hands moving all over the place here. You guys should be thinking, well, right, there's a top wrist lock. I'm telling you, oh, look, there's a double wrist lock. There's a front choke. You got to do this, and you got to see it from all different ways. So I don't think you were with me long enough, but Brian sure was. When I used to show, like, let's say Brian is sitting down on the mat, and I, I think Brian was involved with this. I would have somebody just put their foot, just standing up, like put their foot, so their foot's dangling over here. So now, like, for example, the foot's down there. Here's, here's their ankle. All right, toe hold them from here. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes people couldn't figure it out. Others were like, okay, let me think about this a minute. No, it's got to become automatic. you got to see that foot. you got to already, already imagine the angle of how to get that stop or toe hold and go for it. Now, forget about it. You know, somebody will say, well, the guy will just kick loose. That's not the point. The point is you have to start seeing submissions from everywhere. And then once you can see it and know instantly how to lock it up, then you start working on the rest of your body, how, how you can um, stop the guy from rolling out, let's say, or punching his or her way out, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's creativity. And, and that's what separates a super high level from just another person that is like a textbook, you know, uh, ABC. Kind of you bring up a you bring up a really good point because one thing I've seen with um, a number of people that are very even high level submission people in competition is just when I look at the actual application of the hold the finish itself I don't think it's as maximal it, it, they're not maximizing it as much as they can or what I've experienced through through you know your your tutelage um, it's not to say that they couldn't beat me you know or that they're it's obviously working for them but I still think that you know, it's still maybe only 70, 80% of what that hole could really be just by looking at it, just from my understanding. And so, but it, it, it brings up something else that you just said is by understanding the actual application or mechanics of the hold, you can almost reverse engineer it to where you can start applying that hold at different angles, as opposed to taking it the other way, which is, you know, a certain level of control to enacting a submission by understanding the submission itself and the finish and the, and the mechanics of it, you can start thinking about it when it is maybe in an awkward position on your head or everything else. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's the point. And you're, you're more eloquent than I am perhaps because I've done it this way for, you know, so many years that sometimes lose track of how I struggled in the beginning to get this concept, but yes. Uh, and, and you become, 
It's like a vocabulary. And now you know when to insert certain words at certain times. And that's the gist of it. And I remember many times I would watch competitors, phenomenal athletes, but they would miss opportunities. And I don't mean like to compare it to a football player who drops the pass, okay? That's just an oops moment. I'm saying there's times where they didn't, you know that they didn't see it. They didn't know. They didn't have the thought process of, of how to take it in this direction. Um, and that's, yeah, that's tough to watch because it's like, you know, this, this guy is a great athlete. If they only, you know, if I could only work with them and show them this approach to it, you know, it, it would, it would elevate them, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, but here's the thing. Nobody's training at like, nobody else really has that thought process like I do. So everybody is for the most part on a generally even playing field. So it's not like 30% of the world is training with me and dominating you know, and the other 70% are catching up. Everybody's pretty much on a, on a level playing field. Um, but boy, you know, I sure wish that I would, yeah, it's just, I could, I could, I could up everybody's game and you know that it just, it's a, just a different approach. You know, and it, and it's like this guy today that I, this husband and wife, you know, they were concerned with their size. And one of the things they liked about my YouTube videos and my law starter hooking is that, you know, kind of shows size isn't the whole thing here. And no, it's not. Um, so the principles will work for anyone if if they want to study, you know, and, and it's more, it's just as much at least mental as it is physical with me. You got to put some effort up here to grasp the concepts. But once you do, you know, it, it you, you caught, you know, you caught lightning in a barrel. Yeah, I like that. I like the approach of learning the concepts and the mechanics because it just seems like you can apply them and to everything. It's not just uh, learning a technique. It's learning the concept, like, for example, the figure four frame, and that applies to almost like most of the submissions. So once you master that, I mean, it translates to almost everything. Okay, let's talk about that. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of people here that don't that are listening on a radio or a you know, don't have the access to the YouTube video. You should watch this now. So let's say you're doing a figure four, uh, top wrist lock, we'll say, and you, and you got your elbows way out like this. And you're thinking, well, okay, so what? I'm still tapping the guy out. Well, there's going to come a time, because now this is ingrained in you, with your elbows flared and all weak and all that jazz. Let's say you're doing a stopper toe hold, which is the same move, same frame, same everything. But now because your elbows are out, he's able to reach in and underhook it and break free. Whereas if you did it right with everything tight like this, there's just no way for them to counter. Okay. And that's a drastic example, but that's just one of many examples. So you want to do things right, perfectly right. Even if you do it poorly and get the submission, that's no good. Okay. That's just. Like you take these guys who chamber their punches, telegraph their punches. You might see a street fight video or somebody gets knocked out and they'll say, yeah, look, that works. Well, yeah, well, it worked against that guy. But try to do this against, you know, Muhammad Ali or Tyson or you know, whoever, right? You know, it's not going to work. So you don't want to rely on, you know, 
I don't believe in this. I'd rather be lucky than good. I'd rather be good, okay, and lucky. I want I want both, all right. So a little bit of luck is great, but I want to be good. So let's do things <clears throat> the right way. Your body is going to, you're going to feel strong to your opponent. They're going to be like, Jesus, this guy's a bull, when he or she may not be. Um, they're they're just doing everything proper. That's the the thing. Just don't look for shortcuts, and be be your harshest critic. You know, if you're in the gym and you're tapping somebody out and you know you did it wrong or you didn't do it as good as you can, don't gloat. Say, no, man, tell your training partner, no, 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 I didn't do it right. Let's do it again. I'll, I'll know when I get it right. And that's hopefully you have a coach that can be on the same page and say, yeah, you know, Brian, you didn't you didn't do it exactly the way you, you got him. But that says more about Nico than it does you. OK, sure. that's my take. I had, listen, let me tell you something. When I used to play music, especially not the drums so much, because I, I was fairly good at the drums. But when, with the accordion, I had people that didn't know a lot about music, but they, oh, they just thought it was so great. Oh, you're so good. You know, you're better than such and such. No, I wasn't better than such and such, okay? No way. So it's it's the same correlation. These people were oot and odd. They thought I was great. Well, I knew better. So that's how it should be in your training. If you're tapping people out, you know, don't gloat. Look, look over overall. Who is this training partner? Were they really trying? How was my technique overall? Because a lot of guys will just get, or girls, will get that big ego and think, hey, man, I'm tapping everybody out at my gym. I must be great. Uh, that's not always the case. It may be, but then again, it may not be. So self-analyzation, if your coach isn't going to give it to you, you got to do it. Get my drift? For sure. What, any, any tips on, on analyzing? I mean, I think you touched on a few there, but is there, uh, you know, sometimes people don't have a great coach or somebody who's willing to come forward at this info. I know. I, I mean, as long as I'm alive, people can reach out to me and I will try to help them any way I can. Um, you know, as even at long distances, they know, you know, it doesn't have to be here in person. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, you just have to start reaching out and, and trying to find that coach. You know, I've read, and I've actually in the, in the past met people um, who were sick, physically ill, and they, they went, matter of fact, I know two people off the top of my head that ended up going to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for treatment. And they both lived here in the Chicagoland area, but um, they went to Mayo because they weren't getting it done here in Chicago. Now, granted, their life was on the line, but they searched out, where can I go? Who's the best doctor for this particular case? Um, and that's what people have to do here. Who's the best? You know, if it, if it means that much to a student, search someone out that you, you, that you universally know, you know, from outside sources sometimes, as opposed to like, I, I like to use that term, the circle jerk, where you got like, a thousand fans or whatever the amount is, but most of them are just not, they're just fans. Now you need like really high quality coaching. Um, and that there's just no substitute for that. And you got to search it out because odds are it won't be in your backyard. So how do you get to be like your, your own biggest critic? I think some people struggle with that. 
Yeah, well, that's psychological. I mean, there's just some people that just in anything in their life, they can't do that self-analysis. They, be it ego or, uh, or you know, some sort of other uh, defect, they can't be hard on themselves. And then you have the other ones who are too hard on themselves. They think they're failures. This is just mental health. Um, there's books out there that you can read on psychology. I'm a big, you know, I studied REBT, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy, founded by Dr. Albert Ellis. Um, so I would highly recommend, you know, everybody out there, do, he's passed away now, but um, get one of his books or, or start studying about that. The change, in essence, change the way you, you uh, think and, and you change the way you feel. And that'll give you a little bit of an insight, you know, and what it does is it stops all this blaming everybody else thing. Because, boy, is there a lot of that going around where it's everybody else is wrong. It's you, it's you, it's you, it's everybody else. But you won't take your own, you know, you will never take blame. And I've said so many times on, on this podcast and other places, like with my music career, I had, I had the best teachers there was. There, there, there was no excuse for me not becoming the best. Except I failed. Me, me, no one else but me. Not my coaches or my music instructors, me. Okay? Just like with this fighting, I had the best coaches I could get. So I tried to make the absolute most of it. But later, with the music, I was older and I, I just didn't put in the effort. And I've said it before on here because playing great wasn't going to end up costing me my life if I didn't, whereas not knowing how to fight was going to cost me my life. So I did the Mayo Clinic kind of thing. My life depended on learning how to fight. So I had the best coach, and I put my whole psyche into it. Now, it's hard, Nico, as you know. No, none of us want to be told we're no good or, you know, whatever. We, we want to have some pride in ourselves. But you've got to keep that ego in check. You, you have to start by admitting fault, even in something minor, maybe a disagreement with a friend. Don't let it blow up. Stop talking negative about the person. Just own up to it. And learning how to apologize. This is, we're going off track here. But one of the things with apologies, there's never a but in an apology. I'm sorry for what I did, but no, forget it. If you start learning how to apologize, really being sincere to someone else, it becomes easier for you to be sincere with yourself. So um, this is way beyond, you know, I'm not, you know, a, a licensed medical, clinical social worker here, but I mean, I'm, I'm an amateur psychologist, I guess you'd say, from all this personal study, but I had to learn this myself. So I well, studied on it, you know. Yeah, Tony, but I mean, you know, the application is definitely there. It's um, talking about ownership. I mean, I think anyone can benefit from just having more ownership in their life because ultimately you are in control. Now you are, it is the narrative that you're pushing or the, the world that you're creating, as opposed to you being falling victim, so to speak, or being at the whim of other people's decisions or actions. Now you are, you are essentially empowering yourself by having that attitude. Even if you're accepting fault, you're empowering yourself um, now and into the future. Well, that's a good way of looking at it, you know, and, and believe me, there are times when you are not, you are not at fault. Okay. It is the other person's problem or issue. That's true too. But when it comes to training, you have to set yourself, what is your ultimate goal here? You know, is your goal to lose 20 pounds or is it to become the next, next Mr. Universe? All right. So 
with fighting, it's the same thing. How far do I want to take this? I'm the type of person that I wanted to be the best there ever was. So I, I wasn't just content with like learning how to do, let's say, you know, a stop or toehold and that's it. I wanted to learn it all. And so everybody has to go down their own individual path. Some people want to just do boxing or karate, uh, Shotokan, Taekwondo, whatever, you know, um, that's fine too. So I still would say whatever it is you're doing, try to find the best coach you can and, and interview the coach, talk to the coach, see what her, her, him or her, you know, how their thought process is. See if they're on the same page with you. You know, I, I met guys musically that based on a conversation only and, and knowing how well they played, I wanted to learn from them too. Not full-time study, but I wanted to pick up some stuff, okay, because I knew that they could reach me. They could – we're on the same page. They'll, they'll get through to me, whereas there was others who were very, very good, better than me, but their attitude, I knew I couldn't – this, we're not going to jive. It's not going to work out here. They're not, they don't give a shit. They care about themselves. They don't care about me as a, as a pupil. So, yeah, there's a lot to it. And bear in mind there are, there are unsung heroes and there are people that maybe don't have the, the exposure, the, the marketing behind them that, they, you know, I mean, even when I was training with you, Tony, in the you know, 90s to 2000s in Chicago, um, you know, you certainly had some, some clout via Lost Art of Hooking and other things. But there were other, like, bigger names, so to speak in the Chicago area at the time that, you know, um, wasn't appealing to me, however. And I'll even give you a specific example of a guy I know who was a um, high school wrestler and he went on to, co- he went on to compete at a division one level at a, a very highly regarded program under an Olympian. And he would come back to the wrestling room that I was assisting in as a volunteer. And he, he was very candid and said, basically, I get better training, better coaching when I come back to my high school than I do under this, under this Olympian, because essentially he's not, he, he's just, you know, he's a nut, one of just dozens in the, in the, in the collegiate wrestling room. And that coach doesn't necessarily warm up to him and focus on him. Maybe he doesn't feel like he's got the, the talent to be one of the top. So, I mean, that gives you an idea. And if I said these people's names, I mean, you would know who they are, the coach and everything. I'm not going to, but that's, that's one example of, uh, of in that particular instance, He's getting more out of a guy that you'd never heard of at the high school level than, you know, a world-renowned wrestler who's who's coaching in a top program. Sadly, that happens a lot. Um, you know, and again, not just in martial arts or wrestling or what have you, just you know, other other ways as well. Music, you know, music too. Um, many times, the mo- the greatest performers studied with people that who are they, you know. Who's, what's this, you know, uh, who's this guy or gal? Yeah, it works that way. And a lot of it is like, um, you know, boils down to communication. This high school coach, let's call, call him that, probably was able to see the flaws in the Olympian, in the, uh, in the D1 guy, you know, and, and would, would be able to approach him and say, look, this is what you got to tighten up on. Whereas the Olympian may have wanted the guy to be like, learning all these new techniques. These are the techniques that took me to the world championships and to the Olympics. Well, those techniques may not be geared to this uh, D1 wrestling. I mean, I'm not saying that's the case, obviously. I don't know, but that's an example of it. Just like Bruce Lee, our Bruce Lee, can't wrestle like I wrestle. Or we're not built the same. We have different backgrounds. And 
you know, just it's we got to make the most of, you know, his way and I have to make the most of my way. So it's about bringing out the best in everybody. We're individuals, you know, and that's like, we're, again, with the Tri-C, that's what that's all about. I train everybody differently. You're not all learning the same way. Every, everything's specific to the individual. You can't always get that in, in class settings. You just can't. There's just not enough time. I think there's a difference between a, a great competitor and a great coach. I think a lot of times people get the misconception if somebody won all these titles or, or reached this pinnacle at the sport, they must be the best coach, which I, is usually not the case, I think. I think the the coaching is a different skill set, and you got to be able to reach people. And it, it, it's totally different. Like you said, a lot of times the, some of the best in the world, they're coached by people no one ever heard of because they had a really good coach. It's a totally different skill. Well, and the world champions, or Olympic champions, whatever, they have unbelievable dedication. You know, they're hours, 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 hours. I mean, it's just unending for that moment in time in their life when they can compete, you know. Um, so even if they do have the knowledge and they're willing to impart it, do you have that same depth of dedication that they did to, to reach their level? So that's a whole other element to throw in there. And sometimes, too, I know like in my case, I know sometimes I can get an attitude when I, when I hear com- people that just are bitching and compl- about, oh, you live too far away or, Oh, this is too hard. Or I don't want to hear that. So, you know, I had to go through it. I did it. You can do it. And, and, and a lot of times, like, like the great Ted Williams, the ball player, arguably the greatest hitter of all time. You know, he didn't turn out to be a great coach, you know, manager. Um, he just, because he was so driven to excel, he didn't see that in a lot of other players. Okay. And so he just couldn't, he couldn't relate to them. So, yeah, uh, I can tend to be guilty of that, too, when I don't see you trying hard. It's not that I don't give a damn. It's that I do care, and it's frustrating because I think you have potential, and you're wasting it. Tony, what's your thoughts on – because you mentioned about, you know, that high level and, and sometimes the, the disconnect of somebody who's, who's you know, essentially world-class that maybe can't maybe can't relate to somebody at a, at a much lower level, maybe just a beginner or whatnot. I mean – discuss more on when somebody's learning fundamentals and it doesn't matter what to pick a martial art. I mean, <laughs> is it okay for them to be taught by somebody who's intermediate to just advanced because they're maybe more, they, they're, it's more, they're more recent to that kind of being the, the newbie or the beginner, as opposed to somebody who say like, you know, a black belt or a master of so many years. I mean, what are your thoughts on, is there any kind of connection or correlation between those different types of that happens. Yeah. I mean, again, it would boil down to this intermediate or beginner instructor, let's say the guy that's, you know, trained in the beginners, are they grounded in the fundamentals? You know, that, that is the key. You have, you said that word fundamentals, as long as what they're teaching you is appropriate, you know, and, and, you know, they don't pass the baton to the next instructor that you now have to relearn everything. Um, no, that's fine because, you know, there's, it's, it, it can be difficult at times. It can be boring for the instructor or the music teacher or whatever to just go over the basics over and over. Um, it takes a lot of patience. Bruce has a, that kind of, he has great patience with that. He's really good at teaching the basics of things, you know. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I've seen that, 
where and that's it kind of sort of happened to me in a little not with the fighting but you know with some other stuff that I was involved in I had like introduction lessons from somebody and then I kind of advanced beyond that um musically but uh I'm just man I'm just worried that when you find a, a beginner instructor that he's not he or she's not a hack and teaching you bad things um yeah like yeah, that's all I could say on that. But yes, that that's common. I mean, look at college coaches, college wrestling. You know, um, they don't they haven't trained you since you were a junior wrestler. They got you once you came to their college, in most instances, right? So now you're you're in a different program. You're you're this coach is now or coaching team is there to take you to the next level. So it happens. So maybe we'll touch more on uh, the idea of um, conditioning. That's something that I'm always interested in. And some people I think don't, don't really maybe focus on um, what are your thoughts about the best way for someone to train, to apply, this is a very general question um, to be, you know, solid on the mat as far as solid on the mat or takedowns or grappling um, <clears throat> Any, you know, what are your, some tips people can do when they're trying to plug into a, a conditioning routine outside of uh, the mat time? Yeah, it's all sport or activity related. So like a Taekwondo guy would train differently than a, a wrestler. Wrestling is a lot of anaerobic, but um, work on your explosiveness. You know, the conditioning now is taken on a world of its own. And people many times are there to promote their conditioning program as opposed to being there to create a better, let's say, wrestler specifically, or MMA fighter specifically. Um, your training has to be geared, your conditioning has to be geared to your specific element that you're doing here um, and, and getting great at it. So I would say as a fighter in general, you have to have a good combination of aerobic and anaerobic capabilities and capacities. You have to work on your explosiveness. If I've seen, if I've seen one thing that, again, we're, we're speaking general here, um, I don't see a lot of explosiveness. Now, many guys that came from a wrestling background have, you know, a high level, they have that explosiveness, right? Because they're in on you. They're shooting in fast, and they, they just they get that concept of, of moving quickly. But you, you have to look at their world. Where do they come out of? Two, three-minute rounds in international competition. So now they have six minutes of, you know, let's say that explosiveness. I'm just, again, speaking general here, not specifically. Well, that's almost akin to like maybe one round in MMA. If the rounds are five minutes, let's call it almost even there. So now their conditioning, while their principles are fine, now they've got to work on elongating that. So you you have to have a trainer that that grasps this. And and sometimes doing certain exercises like an Olympic weightlifter would do may not be the ones you want to do to, to get you better. So I'm all about plyometrics, interval training, um, and up and down. I made a video for somebody that's in my Tri-C program this week 
um, geared towards his wife, different than the person I was talking to this morning. In essence, what I said was when I was lifting, when I was lifting heavy, I wanted to work my top end and my bottom end, meaning I wanted to have that one rep max, that maximum strength. But then I also wanted to be able to have a lot of high reps, okay? Um, so I could bench, let's say, I would go either, well, I would do 220, 230, then I would go down to 135. And I just wanted to be able to rep many at 135, 70, 75, who cares, until I was exhausted. So I wanted my, because again, now I'm not talking about training to be a world champion bench press. I was training to be as strong as it could be in the bench, but that it would help me still be a great fighter, right? And not hinder that. So I tried to work both, my one rep max and my muscular endurance. And as I show on the worth the weight, I did a lot of this explosive popping it off the off my chest thing, you know, learning to explode. Because in a grappling or fighting, let's call it a fighting situation, you, you're, you may have to explode quickly. So you have to be ready to do that. Um, and that also involves having your, your musculature proper, you know, having your elbows at the right position and, and it gets, it gets more involved. So that's where a conditioning coach who doesn't understand fighting or, you know, or how your techniques are, you may be doing a specific conditioning exercise, but your body may not be aligned properly to carry over to when you're fighting. Okay. Because. People tend to simplify our, our, our skeletal system. We have a lot of shit going on here. And just slight little angles change things, okay? So you want to make sure that you are training your body in the most specific way for your, you know, for your fighting. So you become a better fighter. You know, I used to say to people 20 years ago or whatever it was, if it was all about just conditioning alone, Jack LaLanne would have been the toughest guy that ever lived, okay? That guy was the energizer bunny. He could do anything physical. So it's got to be a balance here. Your conditioning has to be geared strictly for your fighting or whatever sport or activity you're interested in. Yeah, I still use that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll just one quick thought. I still use that, um, that principle of, you know, when we go just do heavy sets on the bench, and then just the burn set, just with like, you know, 135 and applying that to other lifts. And yeah, to this day, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a really good way to, I think one thing you also added benefit, it helps with recovery. Yeah. Getting blood back to the muscle like that. So yeah, you're flushing um, the muscles and yeah. you know, you're getting that pump blood pumping through there and everything. Um, and again, I'm not advocating, you know, this is what, how you train to be Mr. Universe. All right. Different sport, different, different you know, you're looking at it, you need a different out, out, outcome for that. This is all about, because you want that repetition. You want to be able to, and you don't want to be lumbering, okay? You don't want to be able to, you know, be throwing punches like this. And you want to have that speed. You want to have that, you know, everything I do is still about hand speed and speed, speed, speed. That's all part of it. So if you're working explosively, what kind of weight are you using? Like something you would be able to get up like 20, 30 times, or is it a lighter weight? Or is it more oh, heavy? Well, oh yeah, you know. Okay, first of all, you want inj- injury prevention. Uh, injury prevention. So when you're doing anything explosive, you want to be warmed up and all of that. Well, I can't give you an exact number because everybody's strength level is different. But yeah, if if there's something that you could do 35, 40 times, 50 times, that's fine. You know, rep it out. 
you know, but be like I say, explosive with it, but not shitty form. Okay. Again, it's all about your form. If you can't do it with good form, you're lifting too heavy. And this is not just benching. You do it with your curls, or you could do it with any, you know any muscle group um, that that would be pertinent. Okay. Um, I'm not going to work on my, my calves like that. You know, it's not going to enter into a fight like that. But yeah, you want to see how much you can lift, and don't be embarrassed of the of the amount of weight. You know, if it's if it's 20 pounds, it's 20 pounds. If it's just the bar, which is with collars, let's say 45 pounds, depending on the collars. We had heavier collars at my gym, so it was like 50 pounds, the bar. If it's just the bar, then it's just the bar. Who cares? You know, again, this is the ego. This is about self-analyzation. I don't care if somebody else is doing 200. If I can only do 50, I'll do 50. But, yeah, just rep it out. You know, get that muscle pumped at the end and stretch. Like even now when I go to the gym, because – I go to a Planet Fitness, so if anybody's a member, you know what it's like there. You don't actually have a bench press. You're 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 lifting everything out of, out of a power rack and what have you. So I'm on the bench flat, and I just reach out to the power rack, put my fingertips on there, and I'm just stretching my pecs in between each set. Um, you know, and you know that helps. But yeah, I, Nico, just don't think you have to go heavy. Not always, you know, for your one rep max, yes, that's that, you know, you're going to work up to that, but that takes time. So do you apply, do you apply the explosive lifting to like every single kind of lift or is it mainly just your main lifts? Like, you know, a bench or a squat. Well, I don't squat because of my back, but you could do it with the squat, um, curls, um, even overhead presses that I was doing. Um, just anything that would correlate to my fighting. Okay. Um, as I said, I wouldn't do it if I was working calves, my calf muscles or something like that, or leg extensions, I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, I, 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 but just for the core muscles, the, the, the ones that are, that see to me, grappling, especially is it's push pull. There's a lot of push pulling going on rows and you know just pulling and pushing pulling and pushing locking up those arms with the curls the, the chin-ups those are the types of things and i didn't do explosive chin-ups i see people doing these chin-up things and they're ridiculous because they're not doing a chin-up they're cheating so much with their momentum that's not even legit but with the curls i would do that and i would do super slow too i showed this on a uh, worth the weight you know, really, really, really slow curls like this where it could take sometimes two minutes to go up and two minutes to go down. You don't use, you know, 200-pound barbells to do that shit, okay? Yeah, it's, I've done that. That's a nightmare, the a nightmare. slow curls. It works. I mean, if you want to talk about just a very sh- a quick shot in the arm to, to get your strength up, um, yeah, those slow curls. Oof. Right, but that's not something you train exclusively. You throw it in there every few weeks, six weeks, five weeks, whatever. So it's it's a variety. Now here, just to give you, because you're you got a you're smart. Think of every time you sparred or any fight you've ever been in, what have you, and how you ended up. And and and, and you, know, you got to figure out what was what was your weakness? Did your arms gas? Did you did you gas? You know what was it? Did your legs buckle because you, you fatigue? And then set a program up for that. Work on that. Work on your deficiencies first. You kind of want to be balanced. Because that's all it takes is 
one bad weakness and your whole house, it's like a house of cards. It'll come tumbling down in a, in a fight or in anything. Okay. Um, so I can get specific with people if, if I knew them, like you, if we talk offline, you know, about exactly where you want to be. And I know you enough. So I, I, I got to be careful about giving general, you know, advice because everybody's different, like general health. Um, but yeah, you want to balance it out. So Tony, <laughs> Tony, for me, like you were saying with it, think about, you know, what's failing you during grappling. For me, it would be, especially during like the later rounds when everybody's super sweaty when you're grappling no gi is just getting grips uh everything's just so slippery so what what kind of things do you think you could do to kind of improve on that or- well, to, all right now everybody will say well work your grip well okay work your grip but work your brain work your improvisation we'll use the top wrist lock again we'll stick with that as an example you want to get that top wrist lock the guy's so sweaty, you can't. That's fine. You try to go for it. You already said he's slipping out. It's when he's slipping out that you make your transit. You know he's going to slip out. So that's where you make your transition into something else, okay? Be it a neck crank. Be it a leg lock uh, or, you know, or a different kind of arm lock where, you, where he can't slip out, perhaps a straight arm bar. Or maybe you got a better chance of getting the double wrist lock if you can grab, you know, the inside of his palm and hook it properly, right? Um this is where you, this is where you develop your uh, instincts and your improvisation, and that's great that you brought that up, because that is a classic example of maybe not even if the person is slipping out, but maybe you you're sweaty or you're just kind of tired or whatever it may be, and you're blowing it. Okay, just tr- you got to transition. You got to move on to something else. Um, the neck, man. If that guy's sweating that bad and it's no gi, the neck is very easy to get because it's slippery now. You can easily slide in. You know, you're in the right position. If it's the legs, you know, the toes, I mean, you know, the ankles, I should say. I didn't mean toes specifically, but for a toe hold or something, you know, try to go for that. Um, You know, it's, this is great. This is where your creativity has to come into play. I don't expect a beginner. I don't even expect somebody that's been training for a few months to be able to do this at a high level. But in a matter of year, months, years, maybe, two years, three years, who knows, maybe sooner, depending on the person, you'll be able to start transitioning and seeing these things. Um, what was it? The other day, I think I was watching the Olympics, right? uh, the weightlifting. And I always told everybody, you know, when I see a guy, especially a big dude in public, I always look for where are they going to look weakest, right? The one thing I saw about these Olympic, Olympic lifters is their ankles. Now, these are strong men, but their ankles were thin. You know, they weren't like gigantic, right? So, you know, you look at something like that, toe hold. Okay, maybe I'll go for that Achilles lock or a toe hold or something on a guy like that. Just saying. Well, that's how you have to think about this, like when you're bringing up topics like you just brought up about slipping when, when they're wet. You should already know before they get wet. You should assess them and see where, where do you think their weaknesses really are in their body, you know, outside of obvious stuff like the eyeballs and the groin and what have you. So make a contingency plan to, to try to attack those spots. And that just comes through practice. You know, you, you can actually do this in training. You can have somebody, now this sounds weird, and don't, don't make a joke out of it, but you can have somebody oil themselves up, man. 
you know, uh, and so you can't get a grasp, right? And, and see how that works. And then work, work on getting the top wrist lock, even though the, the guy's full of, you know, lotion or whatever, oil, still try to make it work. You can. There's other ways to vary your grip. I want to touch on that because you said contingency planning earlier in our conversation. We mentioned also kind of those go-to areas or your safety zones. Um, that's obviously done proactively before the match starts or before you're even just training in the, in the gym. Like, what are some ways you kind of build that framework or that outline in just having that? I mean, is it kind of a, a blanket, do you have like a boilerplate version you apply to different opponents? Or are you trying to like put different body types in, a, in categories and assessing from there? I'm just wondering how, how somebody can map that out. All right, well, let's look at boxing. The, the two most traditional are is your, your cover up, your turtle stance, you know, where you're all covered up in a shell and clinching. All right, those are two things that are, uh, taught in, like ingrained in a boxing, so that even if they're, you know, almost on their way out from punches, they're they're not thinking clearly. They're taught to either cover up or grab, grab a hold, right? And so it's it's examples like that. There's similar things like that on the ground. Um, let's say I'm on top. We'll use that as an example. And for whatever reason, and this just isn't going right. Well, I'm going to just get back up on my feet. That's I want to be in that position where. I can pop up. And especially if it's a street fight, I always want to be able to be, able, I always want to be able to get up quickly in case somebody else is entering into the picture here. Okay. To try to attack me or Mr. Nice guy who thinks they're going to help. And in the meantime, as they're breaking us up, I get cold conked by the other guy knocked out. Um, so that's a good example. Um, being in a position where I can rip, to release a hold. So ripping can go both ways. It can create energy on the guy if he's just laying there or it can take energy away kind of thing. I want to always make sure that I'm one rip away from freedom and clarity here. See, these are my safe spots. These are just a few examples. There's more. Um, if I was going live, I could shout it out to you. I said, well, here, I would probably do this, you know, as a safe zone. So you have to, yeah, I have these all mapped out. And they're, I'm not going to say they're completely um, universal, but for the most part, they are. And I, I know that these are like my reset buttons. Okay, I can, okay, let me start afresh here, right, with a clean slate, because this got all screwed up. So you got to kind of have that. And that's why I always talk about don't try a submission or a move that's going to put you on a dead-end street. You know, you always want to have an escape route. You, you always want to be able to get out if shit goes wrong fascinating well it's common i mean you would think it's common sense and it is except that it gets lost in the mumbo jumbo of of everything um you just don't ever want to end up in trouble where you you know where you cannot get out of this i mean if it happens either the guy what you screwed up or the guy or girl was like so much better that you know you just gotta lick your chops and say okay i hope i live i hope this didn't cost me my life you know well, I think we we're coming up on an hour plus or a little more. Start wrapping up the conversation. Uh, any any final thoughts from from you, gents, on stuff we covered or did not? No, it was just great being with you, Brian, and of course with you, Nico. And uh, you know, um, no, that's that's just about it for me. I mean, I just wish everybody out there. Thank you again for listening. Like Bruce says, 
you know, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. Think about joining the membership program or the Tri-C program if you can. And, um, you know, keep supporting us and we'll continue to try to do this as long as we possibly can. Well said. Well, it's been a great time. Thanks for having me today and probably be there on the next time too. Good enough. See you, Nico. See you.